Welcome to Talking Feds, a roundtable that brings together prominent figures from government, law, and journalism for a dynamic discussion of the most important topics of the day. I'm Harry Littman. This is the second of our two episodes recorded live at the Texas Tribune Festival last week. The festival is quite an event, with downtown Austin closed off and crammed full of hundreds of prominent journalists, political figures, musicians, keep an eye out for our YouTube with Lyle Lovett, and thousands of guests for three days of a political junkie's paradise. Today's episode focuses on the Supreme Court of the United States, which takes the bench on the first Monday in October, the day we publish, after a term in which the court pushed the law farther and faster to the right than any term in memory. The effects of the court's decisions were felt profoundly throughout the country, and not least at the court itself, which finds itself at a low point of public confidence and perceived legitimacy. Nevertheless, the new conservative majority looks poised to come out of the starting blocks just as fast starting this term, so fasten your seatbelts, and we hope enjoy this curtain raiser on the new Supreme Court term. Hello, Austin. We are Talking Feds. We're live uh, and thrilled to be here before a rousing crowd at the Texas Tribune Festival. I'm Harry Littman. Today, um, the Talking Feds is aiming to pull back the curtain and foretell the coming year for two of the most opaque institutions in government, the U.S. Supreme Court and the Department of Justice. And this, our first episode, is entitled, What Does the YOLO Court Have in Store for the Country? And What's Wrong with That? So this episode is an assessment of the Supreme Court at this distinctive point in its history and a preview of the coming term that starts in nine days. And we've got a phenomenal set of expert panelists to take us on a deep dive of the court for the next hour, including, we hope, a few minutes for Q&A at the end. Let me just introduce them. Melissa Murray, the Frederick I. and Grace Stokes Professor of Law at NYU Law School. She also co-hosts the Strict Scrutiny podcast with Leah Littman and Kate Shaw, Have I, and is a leading expert on family law, constitutional law, and reproductive justice. Greg Storr, to her left, is an award-winning reporter for Bloomberg News, where he's covered the Supreme Court since 1998. He's also taught constitutional law and the Supreme Court at George Washington Law School. And to my right, our local boy, <laughs> yeah, exactly, Steve Vladek, who holds the Charles Allen Wright Chair in Federal Courts at the University of Texas School of Law. He is also CNN Supreme Court analyst and the co-host of the National Security Law Podcast. Okay, so let's begin with at least a brief retrospective. A uh, decent burial, maybe, on the term past. So the Dodds case, of course, overruling Roe versus Wade, along with the leaked um, opinion, looms large in the public sense of the term. But how dramatic was it overall? Was Dodds sort of outlying or of a piece? Uh, the, the title of this panel owes itself to uh, Melissa and her colleagues, YOLO, everyone knows YOLO, right? You only live once, uh, Strict Scrutiny, a fantastic Supreme Court podcast, by the way, if you haven't heard it, um, coined that term to describe the last, the, the, their last term out justified. Well, I guess you would think so, but, um, you know, how about the last term and even leaving Dodds to the side, what sort of is prominent uh, in... Uh, yeah, exactly. <laughs> How was the play? Right. <laughs> so, one, thanks for having us. Um, I'll note, I did not get the plaid shirt memo, and or you didn't get the colorful dress memo. I don't know who's remiss. <laughs> and, and Greg is just... Oh, he's got the jacket. He's okay. got plaid pants right. on, so right. someone's yeah. failed me. Yeah. Um, I don't think... So, first of all, the YOLO court is Leah Littman's term, so Leah coined that. And no relation. 
no relation to Hillary. <laughs> I, I think it's an apt description, um, not solely because of Dobbs, though largely because of it, but I think if you're only focused on Dobbs, you will have missed the degree to which this term was actually incredibly exceptional in the way in which this six to three conservative supermajority really pushed the court aggressively to the right. So not just on abortion and overruling 50 years worth of precedent, we saw them really diminish the establishment clause, expand the free exercise clause, lay the foundation for undermining the administrative state. Uh, like there were the COVID shadow docket decisions. I mean, this was a huge, huge term. And the real question was, why didn't the court slow down? It was clear the chief justice wanted them to slow down. And he managed to get them to slow down on affirmative action by asking the Biden administration for its views on affirmative action when <laughs> everybody knew what the Biden administration's yeah. views would be. But you know, this was a court that seemed intent on getting in a Tesla when the chief justice was like, let's drive this horse-drawn buggy. Right, so that to me is the most interesting thing, the dynamics among the conservative bloc and why this court was in such a hurry. And you know, I think they're in a hurry because they've been waiting a long time to do this. I mean, it's a really good point because it's not they're not in a hurry because they only have a couple years. I mean, they have a generation. And you might have thought when there have been similar changes in the court that they would proceed methodically, baby steps. And yeah, they real you know, or maybe it's more like a Tesla and a rocket ship. But um, you know, any that that's the sort of headline. We don't all have to do a, a, a me too. But I, no no dissents to my right no, and my I, left. I, I would just add two quick points. I yeah. think that only reinforce what Melissa said. The first is it's not just what the court did; it's how it did it. Um, that in so many of these high profile cases and in some lesser profile cases, the justices went out of their way um, to reach questions they didn't have to reach. Right In Dobbs, they didn't actually have to reach the question they ultimately decide. Um, they didn't even grant cert on the question that they decided. In the West Virginia versus EPA case, they didn't have to get anywhere close to the question they decided. Let's not even talk about Kennedy and the facts they made up to reach the question that they wanted to reach in the, in the Coach Kennedy case. But the other piece of this is I also think it's not – all of that by itself would have made this the most momentous term in the modern court's history. Throw on top of that mask gate – um, right, the Gorsuch Sotomayor brouhaha in January, throw on top of that leak gate, um, right, throw on top of that the justices going out on tour and sniping at each other publicly, um, Thomas going to the American Enterprise Institute and saying, you know, boy, I miss Chief Justice Rehnquist, um, <laughs> right, throw on top yeah. of that Virginia Thomas, um, right, and the, I mean, like, any of these one things would have made this a crazy important term, and we had 10 of them. And so, you know, I think that's, it, it's, you know, I, I think we spend almost too much time when we talk about the Supreme Court just talking about the substance of the decisions. Institutionally, this term was crazy, um, and crazy not in a good way. I mean, it's so true. So uh, if you uh, are at the Supreme Court or study it, these teeny glacial movements are dramatic in the very decorous terms of the court. And Supreme Court watchers spent the whole year just <gasps> one after the other sort of seismic kinds of uh, moves. Let's stick with this remarkable public uh, commentary that started in the term has continued in the summer. So we've had just in the last few weeks public speeches, very contrasting, by the Chief Justice and by Justice Kagan, something, well, for you've never seen the summer, but even, you know, let, let alone uh, during the term. What, Greg, what'd you, what'd you sort of make of that? How extraordinary? And where were they both coming from? Because we're very used to, they're very used to, you know, staying quiet and doing their work only through the written opinions. Yeah, well, I, I thought Kagan's remarks were especially remarkable. I actually back up. Those are the two justices on this court. If there's, there are any two justices on the, the wings who talk to each other, who, who can actually work together sometimes, it's those two. Um, so the fact that they're going in different directions tells you something. But you know, what she basically said, now she didn't name names, she didn't name particular cases, but she says, a court can lose its legitimacy, and she, that was the word, when it does things like decides a case differently because the members of the court have changed when it is reaching out to do more than, than uh, it needs to do in a particular case. Um, 
And that word legitimacy is something that is near and dear to John Roberts' heart. So he's, he's conservative, no question, but he also cares very much, as Chief Justice, in preserving the, the court's institutional integrity and, and the perception of legitimacy. And the fact that they split in that direction in a way that I, I'm sure, and actually Justice Kagan was the one who sort of started it. She, she spoke at the Ninth Circuit shortly after the term and, and, and said those things and then repeated them more recently. Um, you know, she is undoubtedly feeling a member of the majority that she's somebody who would like to work with the majority and try to, you know, uh, limit what they do. But she's, at this point with this 6-3 court, really powerless to, to do a whole lot. So this was kind of her way of framing in big picture terms what she sees the court as doing, uh, not just because of what's in the rulings and what she's commenting on then in those, but also the kind of the bigger picture of we've had this massive shift in the membership of the court and we have different justices and because they are different justices, they are changing the results. And she's a very savvy justice. And this is this was a cheeky comment, legitimacy. She didn't just choose that as she was sitting there. So, you know, is she hoping somehow to actually influence the members? Is she talking more to the country? What did you what did you make of those comments? Well, so I want to just to contrast her view of legitimacy. With Everybody the know justices. about Elena Kagan's comment, Justice Kagan. But it's basically as as Greg, uh, you know, summarized. The court risks damaging its own legitimacy when big changes in the law follow changes in the court's membership. So. And, and, and Justice Chief Justice Roberts had, I think, a very different understanding of legitimacy. His point was there have been lots of moments where people have disagreed with decisions of the court but they've never questioned the court's legitimacy. And so the idea was all of the hubbub around Dobbs is really because people didn't like the decision, not because the decision was necessarily illegitimate. And Justice Kagan, I think her remarks were rejoinder to that. Like, no, everyone sees that this decision would not have happened but for this change in the court's personnel. And that can't be how the public understands our work. So I don't know if she is trying to be conciliatory, trying to build a bridge. It didn't seem like it was a very good bridge. I actually think she's speaking to the public. Like, this is your institution. What do you think about what's happened? You seem to know and have an inkling about what has happened here. What are we all going to do about it? And, and maybe it's to sort of let her colleagues know that this is really grave. And I don't think it's just about Dobbs. I mean, you know, yes, Virginia, there is a select committee. Like, there's a lot of stuff going on around the court that gives the public the perception that the court is not necessarily doing law, but is deeply, deeply enmeshed in politics. And that's not entirely the justice's fault. This is likely um, the confluence of both what they've done in Dobbs, what has been happening on the sort of periphery of the court, and also how the court has been constituted, like Mitch McConnell taking a seat and holding it. All of this gives the public the perception that the court is deeply, deeply enmeshed in politics. Can, can I just add to that? I, I think also Kagan would never say this because it's not her style. But part of what I think is exacerbated of a legitimacy conversation is the behavior of the conservative justices outside of the building. Yes. Right. Um, you know, Justice Thomas goes to AEI and gives his talk. Justice Barrett gives a talk about how we're not partisan hacks at the Mitch McConnell Center. With Mitch McConnell right. on the with, dais. With, with, with Mitch McConnell on the dais. Um, Barrett gives a talk in April at the Ronald Reagan Presidential Library where she says, you know, surely now in retrospect, knowing what's coming, she says, guys, you know, don't just read the press about us. Read our opinions. Read the decisions. Two days later, she's the decisive vote in a 5-4 Clean Water Act case where there is no opinion to read, right? So, you know, there comes a point where you Alito. Um, right, Alito. I mean, Alito. Um, <laughs> Say no more. I mean, Alito. Alito, you know, starts yeah. the term with a speech at Notre Dame Law School last yeah. year, defending what he refuses to call the shadow docket, right, by misdescribing what it actually is. Um, and then he ends the term with a speech in Rome, right, about you know how, gosh, religion is still under threat in America. Um, and so, you know, I just, I, I think we have to sort, you know, the. John Roberts is not them. He's not the one going out giving those speeches. But he is the one who dissents in Obergefell and says Obergefell is lawless, right? And so I think there's, you know, there's a degree to which I think it's worth stressing that part of the legitimacy crisis the court is facing is one that the conservative justices are not just doing nothing to alleviate, but are doing, I think, quite visible things to exacerbate. And I think it's worth putting words on that because that kind of behavior, you know, they're not 
they're not sort of scaling back that behavior. If anything, they're ratcheting it up. Let's just stick with this for one second. So, okay, I mean, obviously, Justice uh, Kagan and the two others uh, in, on, on the left have very, very few cards to play. Nevertheless, it's striking that this kind of critical public commentary, what's the goal? Is it, it, it can't be just to let off steam, right? No, it's not just to let off steam. I, I think the way you said it is very much what it is. It is the only card they have to play. As I said, you know, Kagan is, so go back to when we had that eight justice court for 14 months or so. And we saw the court doing a lot of consensus things where uh, and it was really for them. It was on the right, Roberts and Kennedy, on the left, Breyer and Kagan, really working together. And Kagan does that very well. Breyer did that very well. Um, and Kagan, I think, would still like to do that. Kagan likes to, she sees a majority opinion. If she can get them to, to soften it a little bit, she might join it. That's how she works as a justice. She doesn't instinctively always go to the really strong dissent. But she is increasingly now, she's in a position where, yeah, maybe she could you know, convince Roberts of something, um, but she has to convince Roberts and somebody else. And she doesn't have, the, that's just too big of a hill even for her to climb. So I think both in her dissents, and I mean, you see it in, in, in what she writes as well. Um, you know, I go back a couple years ago, one of her, maybe her, her uh, strongest dissent ever was in the, the partisan gerrymandering case from a couple years ago where the court said federal courts don't have a role in saying that's too partisan under the Constitution. Um, but there's, since there are fewer and fewer occasions for, for her to do anything about this court, these are the cards she has to play. And she's still choosing her words carefully. She is not in those comments this summer. She did not say this particular decision, this particular, yeah. you know, so she's still got that, you know, political ability. But, um, uh, you know, I think that's just what we're going to see from probably all three of them. We'll talk, I'm sure we'll talk more about Ketanji Brown-Jackson later. Well, can, can I just add something, though? So I think the way that Justice Kagan has operated in the past in tandem with Justice Breyer is to sort of put a finger in the dike, like, you know, trim back and make things more incremental. You can't, like, th that's irrelevant right. if you have the rest of the court, you know, like full throttle, let's do it. You only live once. And so it may also be a recognition that the tactics that have worked in the past to sort of limit the court aren't really going to be effective against a five person majority that seems intent on doing the most. And I think we're seeing, I mean, there are, you know, there's this sort of small, but I think rel really significant body of cases where it's five, four with Roberts and the liberals in dissent. Yeah. Right, and I think it's there where we're. Those are the opinions where Kagan is not pulling her punches. Right in SB eight, um, in the Alabama election case from February. Right in the Clean Water Act case in April, because there she's not trying to mollify John Roberts. She has John Roberts. Right, and she's trying to make the broader point. It's actually quite a contrast. It used to be in her first few terms that the final days of the term would feature a huge sort of. Lee versus Frazier, Roberts versus Kagan. That that's when she would really have her biggest fire and some of her most memorable dissents. And now, as you say, this is sort of her closest ally. Um, I do want to spend a, a few minutes doing what most of these panels these days do, sort of exhaustively canvas the coming uh, cases. But let's first turn, Greg. Let's follow up now and talk about whatever thoughts you have about the replacement of Breyer with uh, Justice Jackson, what that portends for the court, if uh, anything. Uh, obviously, it might not change the pattern of votes, but it's it's an important, um, at least generational shift. What do, you, what do you see about that? Yeah, so um, certainly wouldn't expect it to change the outcome in any of these really big, big cases. There are three or four things that I think are going to be interesting to watch for. Um, one, she is the court's first former public defender, and that may we may see some of that uh, evidence of that in, in the court's uh, criminal cases. Um, two, you know, when we're talking about these dynamics here with with you know the, the polarization of the court, there I've forgotten. I'm sure some of them have said this publicly, um, but th there's a tendency when you have a new justice on the court that I think people tend to be on their, their best behavior for a little while. <laughs> a couple weeks. Um, right. it, yeah, it, 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 we'll see how long that lasts. Um, 
but I think we may we may see some of that. Um, you know, certainly uh, seeing what she does in race cases is going to be fascinating. How she she uh, speaks in those cases, you know, this you know new dynamic where you have two African-American justices who are going to see things very, very differently is going to be really interesting to watch. Um, and then finally, you know, we, we got a little sense of her during the confirmation hearing, but one thing we don't know is what she's going to be like when she's a justice who's dissenting all the time. Right. So she has never had to write a dissent. You know, the, the Ketanji Brown-Jackson, most of the time, she's, she was a district court judge who was trying to apply Supreme Court precedent. Uh, we haven't seen what she's like when she thinks that Supreme Court precedent or the Supreme Court, the, the opinion that's coming out is, is horribly wrong. So I will be, that's probably the biggest thing I'm interested in seeing is what is her voice like when she's in that position? I mean, by reputation, she's very collegial. Uh, and it, it goes back to what seems to be the Supreme Court we've lost over the last few terms where they might fight in the actual uh, writings but are very, you know, the, the Breyer view of how well we all get along, et, et cetera. If, if that well, were the, ever the, true... The, the public Breyer if, view. That's yeah. right. If it were ever uh, true, it'll, it, it seems past and almost quaint, but she does bring... I mean, she, her, by reputation, she's extremely sort of um, uh, accepting, it gets along with people across the political spectrum, but this court will obviously, you know, she's going to have to have dissents where she's, she's just really uh, fulminating. Can, can I, sh yeah, one more please. thing, quickly thing I didn't say. You know, she, she probably is the kind of justice who can build bridges, but she is not Stephen Breyer. She, she doesn't have the 30 years of experience on this court, these long relationships doing that that he has. And so kind of just because she's the new justice, um, the ability for, in, for her to build those bridges is not going to be as strong as it is with, with Breyer, at least right away, I would think. I'll just note, <laughs> first black woman on the court, like, it's kind of like a bittersweet milestone. Like this is an amazing accomplishment and yet the court is an absolute dumpster fire. Thanks. <laughs> like, great. Um, Enough said. So, yeah. so there's that. Yeah. I also think like to the, to the point yeah. Greg made about everyone being on their best behavior, you know, there's, there's new company. She's going to be on her best behavior too. So I don't know that we're going to get a very clear picture of who Justice Jackson is or who she's going to become in this initial term. So I think we will see glimmers of it in the affirmative action case. And I think you're exactly right. Seeing her go toe to toe with Justice Thomas with an, a different perspective on what affirmative action is from someone who is from a different generation, um, a generation whose educational experiences have been entirely shaped by affirmative action, I think will be really interesting. But I think for the most part, she's gonna put her head down and try and figure this out. Can, can I say one more point, which is, um because when you're a hammer, everything looks like a nail. Um, we have some voting patterns already for Justice Jackson because there's this pesky little thing called the shadow docket. And you know, I think she's been pretty consistent already. If you've heard that that name, you, you're, yeah. let's credit Steve no, White. No, let's not. I've um, heard it's an emergency docket. But, yes, yes, well, right. there's that. I hear um, there's a book coming out about it. There's a book, coming, a book out. coming out. Enough said. Okay. Um, so, but, but, but I do think, I mean, so there was, this, there was the immigration enforcement priorities case um, where the court splits 5-4, the men in the majority, the women in dissent. There was the Alabama uh, execution case Thursday night, same lineup, the men in the majority, the women in the dissent with Justice Barrett, in both cases joining the, the three liberal justices. So, you know, I think that one of the things we saw already with Justice Barrett was the, the typical sort of um, slow introduction to the court, the maiden opinion, right, the sort of the we're all friends thing doesn't work when the court is handling divisive emergency applications every month. Justice Barrett's first public vote on the Supreme Court was a was the decisive vote the Wednesday night before Thanksgiving 2020 in the New York COVID restrictions case. Um, so, you know, I, I think it's just, and, and it was decisive not just because it was 5-4, it was decisive because the court had literally just come out the other way um, earlier the summer when Ginsburg was still on the court. So I, I, I think we're already seeing, I think, some 
of what I suspect many of us saw. I, I do wonder if maybe the real lesson there is that maybe there's a, a bridge to Justice Barrett in some of these cases. We, I, we could easily spend half an hour on it. We won't, but, that, but she is maybe the unknown, the least well-known quantity among the six, and you could see a future where things temporize a little. All right, I do. I know people come and want to have a sense of what's coming in the next term to orient us. We Doom. <laughs> yeah, you can all leave now. Put put on your mask now, right? Um, and I and we and we want to do that. We just were really eager to talk about the bigger themes. But I'm going to ask each of the three panelists to summarize w one of the sort of marquee cases that are coming, and then after a sort of quick round of just a case that strikes each of them for whatever reason is sort of interesting, illuminating, they're especially watching. So I wonder if I could start with you, we're gonna talk about the, the affirmative action, fair student, Harvard, North Carolina cases. Yeah, so, so these are the cases that are probably gonna get the biggest headlines, at least of the cases that, that uh, the court has taken at this point. Um, there are two cases, one from Harvard, one from the University of North Carolina. And the, the big question is, will the Supreme Court say colleges can no longer use race as an admissions factor? So the history of it, if you can just briefly, uh, starting in the 1970s, selective universities started using race to, to try to add uh, primarily African-American students to, to their campuses. The Supreme Court in 1978 case called Bakke issued this splintered decision, it was 414, and the, the upshot of it was that uh, universities could, for the sake of diversity, not for the sake of remedying past societal discrimination against black people, but for the sake of, uh, as it was termed by Justice uh, Powell, a First Amendment right to, to control who's in their classroom and what they're talking about, make sure there are, there are a lot of diverse perspectives. Uh, the court put some limits, said you can't have quotas, you can't allocate 16 seats just for, just for that, that white people can't uh, compete for. Um, uh, but it allowed at least some use of race. 2003, the Supreme Court reaffirms and, and kind of expands that decision. It's a couple cases out of the University of Michigan. The court says as long as the review is not too mechanistic, as long as it's a holistic look at each, each candidate and their, their application, you can do that and you can even pursue this, this uh, goal of a so-called critical mass, which is sort of was described as enough people of a minority race that those people stop feeling like they're representatives of their race and, and that uh, other people don't start looking at them as representatives of their race, but as, uh, as, as individuals. Okay, so now we have these two cases, both brought by the same group, challenging the use of race at North Carolina and Harvard. Um, they lost at the lower courts. The lower court said, hey, the Supreme Court has said this is okay, and you're abiding by the Supreme Court opinions. Um, there are, with these two cases, big ways and small ways the court can decide the cases. They could say that, in particular with Harvard, um, there's an allegations that Harvard uh, discriminated against and put limits on Asian American uh, enrollment or acceptances. Um, they argue, that the plaintiffs also argue that uh, these schools could have accomplished diversity through race-neutral means, uh, doing things like you know, improving recruiting, eliminating legacy admissions, which uh, overwhelmingly favor white applicants. Um, and then the big thing they could do, that the court's being asked to do, is to overrule that 2003 decision. As a technical matter, they're not asking them to overrule the Bakke decision from 1978, um, but essentially they, they, the court could potentially overrule both of those rulings. Um, a lot of arguments on, on both sides about um, you know, precedent, uh, about um, the, the, the 2003 ruling in Grutter, written by Sandra Day O'Connor, uh, sort of said at the end, um, the line was something like, it's been 25 years since we approved diversity as a compelling interest, and uh, I trust that in another 25 years it won't be necessary. Um, it's now been uh, you know, about 20 years, or 19, it will be 20 by the time the court rules. 
Um, so some you know, opponents of, of, of using race sort of see that as a, you know, a, 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 a lever that they can use to say, you know, this, this uh, decision had an expiration date anyway. Um, if the court does say uh, we're overruling Grutter, even that sort of, there are big ways and small ways they can do that. Uh, it leaves open questions about, for example, um, can schools actually still pursue race through those so-called race-neutral means, is even the goal of it a legitimate one that a school could be pursuing, uh, thinking about, um, uh, you know, trying to have a certain, you know, a, a significant percentage of, of minority students on campus. Um, there's so much more I could talk about with this case, but that's that's going to be one of the, bi the big ones. Yeah, great. And so this O'Connor dictum will figure large, and maybe, you know, Roberts as well in, in a previous... Uh, race case. It's a sordid business. You know, you you know, you have a sense of antipathy among some of the conservatives, and it figures with this yellow theme. This, you know, is well, this even like a question? How this no. court's going to come out? Like no. everyone knows well, how this what, is going to end. Is that right? Everybody yeah. agrees. We all overruling. Yeah, yeah. Like, yeah. They're going. Any to questions out there? I, you know, because they're the yellow court, and Barrett will go that way without a doubt. And it doesn't matter. Over. Yeah. This is over. Yeah. I mean, I, okay, yeah. well, next case. I think there are two things. So, so first, I mean, one of the things about the yeah. new court is that in these preview discussions, we used to all be as, hey. you know, sort of right. respectful and polite <laughs> as Greg, right? And, and, and. You sweet summer child. Right. <laughs> and, and, and. No, but I mean, I don't know how you can look at the, you know, they granted cert before judgment in the North, like, yeah. they hustled the North Carolina case up to the court. Like, this is, you know, I, I mean, Greg is right that there are variations in how they overrule Grutter, but you can almost, someone has already written the paragraph, right? Justice O'Connor's promise it's is being Justice vindicated Thomas. five years earlier, right? Like, I mean, so I, I don't think this is a question. I think, it, but, but I think the fact that it's not a question or at least my belief, and I gather Melissa's belief this is not a question, is itself a pretty telling indictment of where we are, which but is, you this know. This is exactly what Justice Kagan did. Like, how is this different from 2003? It's right. not like they're doing anything different at these colleges. It's the same stuff they've been doing yes. since 2003. The only thing that's different is this court. It's the personnel. And, I'll say, and, and the one thing that I think is, is maybe flying a bit below the radar in these cases is, you know, going after a race-based affirmative action under the Equal Protection Clause is only a problem for public universities, right? The Harvard case actually also implicates Title VI, which means private every private university that receives federal funding, right, could be on the hook. And that's well, actually much bigger well, than Well, it's Grutter. even bigger than that. I mean, like, this is just talking about admissions. This decision is going to unleash a flood of yes. litigation over how universities actually organize yes. their academic programs and lower schools, too. I mean, think about That's, all of the public schools who, you know, make sure their classes are evenly balanced in terms of gender. Can you even do that now? Is it okay under intermediate scrutiny? Could you do racial balancing just to ensure that classrooms look diverse? I don't know. I mean, so there's going to be a flood of litigation after this. This is not going to settle a question as this court seems kind to of like, kind of like Kind of like Dobbs. A little bit. Well, the, uh, well, because, in fact, well, part of the dynamic here is it's not simply five to six justices who have been pawing the stall and now are very eager, but it, they are annexed auxiliary to an entire core of conservative uh, lawyers who have written these briefs in advance. All right. well, and How many and conservative lower court judges. I yeah. mean, and, you know, we are here in Texas, home of the, well, not home, but sort of in the geography of the lovely Fifth Circuit. I mean, I, I you know, I don't know how. I mean, the 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 lower courts are not just taking their signals from the Supreme Court, right? They are also testing the envelope of how much they can get away with before the conservative majority slaps them down. So, it's open season in a way. Can, can I just j jump in quickly to say I don't disagree with with their prognosis that where this case is likely going. I I do think there are a couple uh, hills that that the plaintiffs are going to have to climb that are going to be really interesting. One of them is. Um, as Steve said, one case is under the Equal Protection Clause, um, which is part of the 14th Amendment, ratified in 1868, remember that date. The other is under Title VI of the Civil Rights Act, which the Supreme Court said in the Bakke case, this is one of the cases that might be overturned, we just kind of consider it the same thing, it's the same as the Equal Protection Clause. We don't need to distinguish between the two of them. This is a court that, in so many other areas of law, has to deal with the text in a statute, really cares about the words of the statute. 
And I think they're going to have to deal with the words of Title VI just to, to, to get there. The second thing is, um, this is also a court that cares so much about originalism. What did, you know, the original meaning of, of words of the Constitution. Okay, so the key words, equal protection, were ratified in 1868. Um, and this court spent so much time this last term talking about, you know, looking at the history and tradition. That's how we understand what these words meant at the time. Well, if you go, the, the, in this case, um, Harvard does a very, uh, uh, you know, a much fuller job than the other side does of talking about what the Equal Protection Clause meant back in 1868, and they point to an awful lot of statutes enacted by Congress and states that made racial distinctions, that set up the Freedmen's Bureau, which by definition, only applied to black people and provided benefits for black people. So the idea that that the original meaning of the Equal Protection Clause was, you know, you have to be absolutely colorblind is something that is going to require some work. I'm not saying they won't do it, but to, to, to you know, to enshrine that into a majority. But, but Greg, Justice Harlan in his dissent in Plessy said the, con I mean, the Our great dissenter. is colorblind right. I mean, and knows I, no caste. I, I, all right, all right, all right, all right. 20 minutes. <laughs> How many of you guys have been to Supreme Court previews where like dweeby guys in bow ties give heads kind of could not talking feds? Well, you got you have it here. That's affirmative action. All right. That those was affirmative action. Those that four was that was yeah, you guys remember um four words, four words. The independent state legislature doctrine. I I I think that maybe a year ago no one had heard of it. No to, one. Today, very, very few people had heard of it. I'm nobody. Today, you've heard of it, but we don't know what the hell it is. In a year, we will. And uh, Professor Vladek will give us a preview of the case, that the, the cockamamie case that's going to present it. Well, so it's a real case. Um, I mean, Moore versus Harper is a North Carolina case, and it's about gerrymandering of state house districts and state uh, elected officials and federal house districts under the state constitution. And the question, the underlying question, is basically whether the North Carolina Supreme Court um, could strike down the state legislature's gerrymandering on the grounds that it violated the North Carolina constitution. Um, when I say that to you, you might say, well, why is the North Carolina Supreme Court's interpretation of the North Carolina constitution something that the US Supreme Court has any interest in, or I should say, constitutional authority to um, review? Um, well, that's where the independent state legislature doctrine comes in. So um, Article 1, Section 4, and Article 2 both refer to the legislature of the state when it comes to two critical different federal electoral processes. Article 1, Section 4 talks about the legislature um, making rules for the time, place, and manner of federal congressional elections. Um, and Article 2 talks about the legislature making rules for the selection of presidential electors. The theory of the independent state legislature doctrine is that when those two constitutional provisions refer to the, quote, legislature of the state, they are actually referring to the legislature to the exclusion of any other actor in the state, meaning the federal constitution is giving the state legislature's primacy um, and supremacy over the governor of the state, over the Supreme Court of the state, when it comes to federal, congressional, and presidential elections. Um, and the idea is that, therefore, if the legislature has spoken, there's nothing that the state court can do. The state court's not allowed to strike down a state law regulating federal elections in a context in which um, the legislature has been clear. That is the basic gist of the independent state legislature Again, doctrine. Again, all state law, state law, state law, that the federal constitution would say the court, which is normally the final interpreter, and say, you can even have states in which legislatures look to the courts, say we want to have the court's view, but this, which first surfaced in well, Bush v. Gore. Second surface. Yeah. So there's, there's, yeah. so there's yeah. an obscure old like oh, you never 19th want to take on Steve Vladek. I'm sorry. Yeah. No, but no, but I mean, no, but this is important, right? So, so um, those who are defending this doctrine yeah. with a straight face point to this really old Supreme Court case called McPherson versus Blacker. Um, as proof that this is a thing that has always been, never mind that that has nothing to tell us about. Seven, but guys, it's worth stressing just how radical this argument is. Um, it would mean that when states ratified the federal constitution, um, they were effectively um, rewriting their state constitutions. 
Um, that seems to me something that someone might have pointed out and objected to, given how much of a dispute it already was that states were ceding power to the federal government. Um, but yes, the place where it gets the most prominence um, is in the, the concurrence in Bush versus Gore, that fantastic example of careful judicial craftsmanship, um, where, but, but, but it actually, that, guys, that helps to illustrate what is animating all of this, right? In Bush versus Gore, the central problem that the conservative justices were worried about was a Democratic majority on the Florida Supreme Court thwarting the will of the Republican majority in the Florida legislature. Right? And descriptively, that is a fair summary of what was happening in Florida. Right? And what's like, happening today across the country. Actually. Well, I wouldn't say Leg across the state, country. Well, state, in, in red state after red state, this would empower the in legislatures. Red, with, yeah. In red states with blue Supreme Courts. That is what this is about. And so this is about Pennsylvania, and it's about oh, North Carolina, Court, and it's yeah. about purple Supreme Courts. Right? And so the problem, so when you get people actually defending this, what they'll say is, well, if a state Supreme Court is going rogue, Right? Surely the federal Supreme Court should be able to do something. And my response to that is, what does going rogue mean? Right? Um, if a state Supreme Court is interpreting a state constitution to, to decide that there are six days in the week, that's really stupid. Right? But that's not going rogue. That is their authority under the state constitution. So, you know, I, I, what's, what's tariff? So you'll, you'll see lots of alarmism about this case because there are versions of the Trump challenges to what happened in the 2020 election that are tied to this. Um, it's actually not quite true. Like the in Pennsylvania, for example, it was just the late arriving mail-in ballots that ended up not making a difference that would have been problematic if this were the law. The real issue, I think, right, is that this would just render state Supreme Courts pointless. Um, right, when it comes to federal elections, when it comes to federal congressional districts, in contexts in which we already have problems of severe gerrymandering of state legislatures. Well, not just state courts, also state boards of yeah. elections or commissions, yes. like the commissions of the court charged yes. with dealing with partisan gerrymandering. And so, and so part of, so the alarmism from sort of the, I think the Supreme Court watchers is that the court took this case in the first place, right? Because there's no circuit As split. As always, right. Right, there's no, there's no imperative, but there had been a series of opinions some during the 2020 election cycle, where at least four of the conservative justices have expressed sympathy for this doctrine. And so this is sort of the put up or shut up moment. And it's a really big deal for originalism because the originalist case for this is non-existent. Um, it's a really big case for federalism because this would actually be a massive transfer of power from state Supreme Courts to federal courts. Right? Um, and it's a really big issue for the future of our democracy in a context in which there are plenty of, of states where state Supreme Courts are actually striking down state laws because they are not sufficiently protecting um, access to the polls or because they are not sufficiently uh, dividing the people of the state into representative districts. So pretty big deal. And especially the immediate future of our democracy. Okay, I was afraid this was gonna happen because we're our, the, the, the clock ticks, um, but I'm, we want to do one more uh, big uh, marquee case, and then I'm going to ask each of you just to name a case and give a sentence about why it's interesting you uh, in particular. But Melissa is going to talk about 303 Creative LLC. Okay, I think I can do this in two minutes, so don't worry, I got okay. you. Okay, so this is an issue that has been percolating around the court for some time now. It's a question about how civil rights laws that require those doing business in the public sphere to accommodate all comers, whether they agree with them on the basis of race or sexual orientation or whatnot. Colorado has a law like this, the Colorado Anti-Discrimination Act, and it prevents those doing business, like businesses doing business in like in the public sphere to prevent or withhold their services from customers on the basis of race, sexual orientation, religion, et cetera. Um, Lori Smith, who is the owner of 303 Creative in Colorado, it's a website design company. Um, she wants to expand her services to do wedding websites, but she doesn't want to serve those who wish to use her for same-sex weddings. So this is a case that we've seen before with Masterpiece Cake Shop. The court punted on that back in 2018, refused to decide whether in these collisions between civil rights and religious rights, whether religion or civil rights trumped. 
it's back again. And the question is slightly different. So Lori Smith has argued that as a Christian, she objects to same-sex marriage. She doesn't want to provide these services. And so this is a problem in terms of her free exercise rights. But she also notes that she wants to be able to put on her website, her business website, a notice that she will not do wedding websites for same-sex weddings. And so Colorado's requirement that she provide these services, she says, is a function of compelled speech. They're requiring her to say things that she would not, and it prevents her from actually noting that she would not provide these services. The court in uncharacteristically restrained cert grant did not grant cert as to Lori Smith's religious rights claim. So they put that to the side, probably because they did a lot on the free exercise front already in this term, and there's no need to continue to till that ground for now. So instead, they turn to free speech, where they've only done a little bit of work. <laughs> so this is really going to be a question about whether or not the civil rights law compels those who object to same-sex marriage to give a particular message, speak a particular message that, that is in conflict with their own beliefs. So it's going to be a First Amendment free speech claim. And this question, I think, is going to have real reverberations. And going back to Dobbs, and we didn't talk about Justice Thomas's concurrence in Dobbs, but as all of you no, in his concurrence in Dobbs, Justice Thomas indicated that the entire line of the court's substantive due process jurisprudence is problematic and should be reconsidered and possibly overruled at the earliest opportunity. This includes Obergefell versus Hodges, the 2015 decision that nationalized same-sex marriage. I don't know if there's going to be a case that takes on Obergefell in the near time. There's got to be. There may yeah. be, there may not. Who knows? And, and, and yeah. Justice Kavanaugh wrote a concurrence suggesting that, you know. Trust me, there yeah, won't be, he there says. There won't be. You'll have to come through Brett Kavanaugh. Fine. My point is, all you need are cases like 303 Creative that circumscribe the landscape of the public sphere where same-sex couples can expect equal treatment and normalizes the idea that they can expect different treatment and that can be as effective as rolling back rights on same-sex marriage. So, I mean, this is kind of an interim measure, and it's probably not going to get the kind of play it should because of everything else that's happening at the court, but this is an enormous case. And as your presentation suggests, this is another one with a foregone conclusion, yeah? Oh, for sure. This is, they're going to say that religious, or free speech trumps civil rights in this case. Yeah. All right, it is now time for a spirited debate brought to you by our sponsor, Total Wine and More. Each episode, you'll be hearing an expert talk about the pros and cons of a particular issue in the world of wine, spirit, and beverages. Thanks, Harry. In today's spirited debate, we pop open Chardonnay and Sauvignon Blanc to see if there's a right wine when it comes to white wine. Well, as the weather warms up, the chilled wine comes out, and we'll start with the most popular white, Chardonnay. Chardonnay is a grape that is influenced more by the winemaking style and where the grape is grown than any other type of grape. A lot of the flavor will come from the terroir. That's the environmental factors where it's grown, which will include the soil, topography, and climate. These are just a few of the factors that influence the flavor of Chardonnay. Cooler climates tend to create medium-body Chardonnays, with crisp flavor and hints of green apples and pears. On the other hand, Chardonnay that is grown in a warmer climate is typically fruitier, with hints of peach, melon, and citrus fruits, with a typically heavier body. The winemaking style also plays a big part in the flavor of Chardonnay. A very popular method uses malolactic fermentation, which gives the wine that buttery flavor and feel. Another factor that plays a role in the flavor of white wine is oak. How long the white wine has contact with oak in the aging process affects the color and tannic profile of the wine. Chardonnay is one of the few white wines that is appropriate for aging over longer periods of time. On the other hand, most Sauvignon Blanc is best consumed early in the aging process, and it's not really fit for long-term aging. I would say three to five years max. However, white Bordeaux, usually made with predominantly Sauvignon Blanc grapes, is known to age well for many years. Speaking of Sauvignon Blanc, like many wines, it's also greatly affected and influenced by terroir. Sauvignon Blanc grown in cooler climates tends to be highly acidic and crisp with some spicy and floral notes. On the other hand, warmer climates produce much more tropical fruit flavors in Sauvignon Blanc with less acidity. So we're already seeing some differences in these two types of white wine. So whether it's a Sauvignon Blanc or Chardonnay kind of day, 
your Total Wine & More has a huge selection to choose from, making it an easy decision. Get both. So find what you love and love what you find. Only at Total Wine & More. Cheers! Thanks to our friends at Total Wine & More for today's A Spirited Debate. All right, so just each of you are, are close court watchers, and along the lines of what you just said, Melissa, you have different cases that really have potential large implications or uh, interesting, we'll, we'll maybe tease apart schisms in the court, et cetera. I just wanted you to name one so that we can all be thinking about it as the term comes and give one sentence about why you know, you, you're going to be following it closely, even if the national press isn't uh, onto it. So I'm going to be following Holland versus Burkine, which is actually a quartet of cases. Um, I think it comes out of the Fifth Circuit, and it's a challenge to the Indian Child Welfare Act, which was promulgated by Congress in 1978 to give Native American tribes exclusive and in some cases concurrent jurisdiction over child welfare proceedings involving Native American children. And the law prescribes a whole set of various preferences for the placement of Native children in foster homes or in adoptive placements. And it puts Native American families and tribal families and the tribes themselves ahead of other potential adoptive or foster parents. This is being challenged by two white adoptive parents who have adopted a Native American child on the ground that the various provisions of the Indian Child Welfare Act um, that, that govern the placement of Native children discriminate impermissibly on the basis of race in violation of the Equal Protection Clause, or alternatively, the requirements and the record keeping that are required under ICWA commandeer state officials into a federal program. So this is going to be big in terms of federalism, big in terms of equal protection, can maybe recast the entire relationship between Native American tribes and the federal government. Um, and one of the things I think is going to be missing here, as much as this court talks about its love of history and originalism, is we're not going to get the background as to why the Indian Child Welfare Act was passed, but it was passed in 1978 um, as a kind of remedy that the tribes wanted because of the century of Native American removal from tribes and the placement of Native children in Indian boarding schools and in Anglo homes for the purpose of assimilation. And the tribes felt like this was essentially a, a kind of functional cultural genocide and that they could not survive if they did not have control and sovereignty over child welfare matters involving Native children. So I'm gonna be looking to see if that history comes out in oral arguments and in the decision. I suspect it may not because there are definitely at least four on this court who want to see this gone, although Justice Gorsuch is a real Gorsuch wild card. Is the wild card. Yeah. Um, I'm going to stick on the theme of voting and race, which is definitely a theme of this term. There's a big case out of Alabama involving the Voting Rights Act. This is a case where, um, so Alabama has seven congressional districts. The Black population, black voting age population of Alabama is 27%, which is roughly two-sevenths. Um, Alabama's districts are drawn so that there is one majority black district and six majority white districts, with um, all of which are represented by white Republicans. Uh, lawsuits, multiple lawsuits filed under the Voting Rights Act saying um, you are denying uh, black voters the opportunity to, uh, an equal chance to elect candidates of their choice. Uh, Three-judge panel involving with two Trump appointees on the panel says, yep, under existing law, Alabama can and must draw these districts in a way that there are two majority black districts. Basically, Alabama is heavily black in urban areas and across something called the Black Belt, which was originally named because of the, the color of the soil. It's a kind of mostly rural area kind of across the middle of the, the state. Um, you look at the map and you can kind of see how it's, it, it's, it's, it's doable. Anyway, Supreme Court blocked that ruling. So they're gonna, there were going to be two majority black districts for the fall election. Supreme Court issued a stay, blocked that Shadow ruling. Shadow docket. Shadow docket, five to four. This is one where the Chief Justice was with the was with the liberals. Um, now they're hearing arguments on it. It's the first week of the term. Alabama is making the argument that um, not only um, do we not have to create this district, that it is really impermissible for us to have to consider race at the front end at all, for it to be a goal uh, in, in drawing the districts. It says what we what we need to do and what we did 
is use neutral criteria. Uh, so, you know, which included basically incumbency protection. It's kind of drawing them the way they were. Um, you know, if you were going to draw that second black district, somebody would be, one of those white Republicans would be, would be out of luck or two of them would be running against each other. Um, it, it is another case that, um, you know, there's really very little doubt how it's going to come out. Um, I suppose there's some question about what, which way the chief will ultimately go, but, um, you know, probably it's, it's going to be six to three. It will be further whittling down the, the Voting Rights Act, and it will be yet another case that will have a huge impact on, on how, how people elect the representatives. Basically, the question is, is democracy constitutional? Right. Those were your but, your but, words, Melissa, not but mine. Can I say? I mean, before before I actually, um, I think it's I think it's worth stressing how big of a deal the stay that Greg mentioned was, because it did not just mean that Alabama gets to use its let's just say illegal congressional district maps in the 2022 midterms. Georgia followed suit. There was a district judge in Georgia who would have required Georgia to draw another majority-minority district who said, oh, but the Supreme Court has said nothing, and I'm going to read into the nothingness that I should not do this. Um, Louisiana, you had a 152-page opinion explaining why what happened in Alabama didn't apply in Louisiana. You had the Fifth Circuit allowing the district court's decision to stand, and the court stays that. Um, there is a pretty good argument that somewhere between four and 10 House seats in the 2022 midterms would have been safe Democratic seats if the Supreme Court had not intervened in these cases and are now all safe Republican seats. If the ultimate outcome of the midterms is that the Republicans have a 10-seat or smaller majority in the House, it will be directly because of the Supreme Court. And I think we need to say that out loud. Um, so good times. Um, all right, so I have to say, and then, okay. Um, a case where I'm not as sure about the outcome um, is a case that has the uh, increasingly common and unhelpful name, United States versus Texas. Um, <laughs> I mean, but, but, but if anything, the caption is actually emblematic of the problem. Um, so this specific United States versus Texas, it's really hard to keep track of all of them. I literally have a fucking Excel spreadsheet. Um, this specific United States versus Texas is about um, the Biden administration's ability to set enforcement priorities for the removal of undocumented immigrants. Um, there are somewhere north of 11 million undocumented immigrants in the country. The government does not have the capacity to remove all of them, let alone, you know, at once, even over some long period of time. And so who decides, right, how we're going to prioritize it? The executive branch or a federal district judge in Victoria, Texas? Um, so Texas's position, right, is that it should be a federal district judge in Victoria, Texas, a judge, mind you, who Texas had a 100% chance of having the case assigned to when they filed it in Victoria, which, by the way, is not close to the border and is not where the state of Texas is and is not really, sorry, people from Victoria, not really big deal. Okay. Um, yeah. The, the larger question is a constitutional question about enforcement discretion, but the first question, this is why it's not going to get a lot of coverage, is whether Texas even has standing um, to bring this kind of lawsuit to challenge enforcement priorities when Texas itself is only harmed incidentally, right, by the additional number of undocumented immigrants who are resident in the state. Um, and as the federal government points out, I think, quite effectively in its brief, um, if Texas has standing, every state has standing, at which point we are going to see more of what Texas has done to the Biden administration. Texas has brought 29 lawsuits now in 18 months against the Biden administration. Um, whatever you think of that, right, the theory on which Texas is basing these lawsuits would allow any state to sue any administration. And so I think the, the reason why U.S. versus Texas is such a huge case is because this model we're seeing today, where every time the federal government does something new and remotely controversial, some state marches into court and sues, right? Whether that model is going to survive is going to be the question in balance in this case. Um, and just to sort of give you a preview, um, the federal government went to the Supreme Court and asked for a stay of this decision. Um, earlier this summer, this was Justice Jackson's first public vote. The court denied this day 5-4, with Justice Barrett actually joining the liberals. So that, to me, is a sign that Justice Barrett's willing to vote for the federal government. Is there another conservative? Um, and I think that's, you know, I'm actually cautiously optimistic, 
because this looks to me a lot like the Remain in Mexico case from last term, where the court also had initially denied a stay to the Biden administration and ruled for the Biden administration. But I also think this case has much bigger and broader implications than you might guess from its specific subject matter and caption. Excellent. All right, stay tuned. Um, so I want to close with uh, with the what's what does the yellow cord have in store for the country and what's wrong with that with the panel with the uh, license of the um, the Tribune I don't even I don't know who the enforcers are here we're happy to take to take some uh, questions after but I do just want to ask um, the so what question you know. Elections have consequences, as do nasty political victories. The court ebbs and flows. Why isn't this part of a normal, normal ebb and flow over the history of the court? Is this different? You know, why are we in, you know, such, uh, why is there such distress on the stage? Um, well, so up until, we, we've always had ideological divides on the Supreme Court, or we've had them for a very long time. What has changed is that starting in 2010, when Justice Kagan replaced Justice Stevens, that was the first time when we got to the point that all the most conservative justices were Republican appointees, all the most liberal justices were Democratic appointees, and then you add on all the power Republican successful Republican power politics of the the the, the vacancies starting with Scalia's death and the Merrick Garland uh, uh, confirmation that never happened um, and Amy Coney Barrett getting rushed onto the court. And we have the outside forces putting partisan pressure on the Supreme Court and turning it into a partisan institution unlike anything we have had in our history. That is the biggest thing that is different. That is what I think underlies, to go back to Justice Kagan, her concern about the legitimacy. She didn't say this, but you know, the concern is that the court is looking more and more like a political institution. Um, you can see it in the polls. People are, are, are sensing that. The question is, and I think I know Melissa and Steve's answer, Will that ever have any restraining effect on this court? It bothers John Roberts, no question. It might bother Brett Kavanaugh a little bit, but not enough so far that it has made any difference in, in see, that we can tell in how he has voted. To me, that is like the big picture, a big picture dynamic of will the court care at all about the perception it is creating at some point? I want to give Melissa last word on this. All right, so I'll just say, I mean, I actually think there's, I want to, I want to, um, I want to answer, I actually don't, I'm not quite as dismal as, about that as Greg thinks I am. Um, just one data point first, right? Um, the last day on which a majority of the justices on the Supreme Court have been appointed by Democratic presidents was May 14th, 1969. We had not walked on the moon. Um, the next 11 justices and 13 of the next 15 were appointed by Republican presidents, even though Democrats won six of the, have won six of the 13 presidential elections since then and have won the popular vote in eight of the 13 presidential elections since then. So when you ask, don't elections have consequences? Yes, I would think in a country that is pretty closely divided right down the middle, you wouldn't have a 6-3 court with an incredibly right-leaning, right-entrenched conservative majority. Elections should have consequences that resemble what the country looks like, not necessarily the debating society that is the federal society. Um, to Greg's point, though, I, the la last thing I'll say, I do think there is one scenario you know, that we haven't sort of accounted for, um, which is that the Democrats actually expand their control of Congress in the midterms, um, right? That, you know, one of the things that we haven't talked about at all today is sort of the, the complete failure of the Biden Supreme Court Reform Commission to accomplish anything at all, um, and the sort of the, the comfort that the conservatives have that like they are safe, that Congress is not gonna use any of its many tools and weapons to sort of limit the court's power to rein the court in. Um, that is certainly true today, right? I'm not sure if the Democrats hold the House and pick up two seats in the Senate, that's true next January. And so, you know, I think the one place where I have at least some cautious optimism is if that's the electoral consequences of Dobbs, et cetera, Melissa's looking at me like I'm crazy, maybe we'll see a little more movement, not toward adding seats, not toward term limits, but toward more modest reforms that actually remind the Supreme Court that like they're not, you know, completely unchecked by anybody. And I'm just going to take 30 seconds to add to your point and say it's not simply Republicans versus Democrats. It's the self-conscious choice in a very narrow silo, people who came of age in a sort of hothouse culture that was very self-consciously reactionary 
and proudly in the narrowest band of of thought, legal thought, so that they are in fact now not representative of either politically or legally. Right, Sandra Day O'Connor would be a flaming liberal on the current right, yeah. Supreme Court. Melissa, um, so and I then was, if, if if can we ask a couple questions? If so, there are microphones here. Sorry. So I, I was going to say, Steve, I'm looking at you with incredulity because you just told us that Moore versus Harper is going to likely wind up with the Republicans taking control of the House, which means all of this is unlikely to happen. So I'm still hoping. Okay, be optimistic. I, I, the truth of the matter is, from 2016 to 2020, this was supposed to be a six to three progressive majority of this court, and it wasn't because. They stonewalled on the Scalia seat, and they refused to give Merrick Garland, who is no liberal squish, like, I mean, he's right down the middle, a moderate. They refused to give him a hearing, and they eventually installed Neil Gorsuch after the fact. From 2020 to now, it's supposed to be a five to four conservative majority, a bare conservative majority. If we'd had that six to three conservative majority from 2016 to 2020, I don't think we get Rucho. I don't think we get a pass on partisan gerrymandering. I think we get very different outcomes in terms of abortion because they would have had a more forceful decision in June medical services. I think it's going to be harder to write a decision like Dobbs, even with a five to four conservative majority, if you'd had the four years preceding. So, I mean, yes, elections have consequences and we've been living with the consequences of people thinking elections don't have consequences, right? So, I mean, there's that. And secondarily, Congress is a part of all of this too. Congress is so polarized and gridlocked that nothing can happen. And we see that constantly. And so instead, the court has become the place where conservatives exercise their efforts to advance their domestic agenda, essentially, because they can't get it done through majoritarian politics at the federal level. So it's state legislatures and it's the courts and the court. Please join me in thanking the panel. All right, that's all the time we've got. Thank you very much to Greg, Steve, and Melissa. Thank you very much to the audience at the Texas Tribune Festival. And thank you very much, listeners, for tuning in to Talking Feds. If you like what you've heard, please tell a friend to subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts or wherever they get their podcasts. And please take a moment to rate and review this podcast. You can also now subscribe to us on YouTube, where we are posting full episodes, talking books, and bonus video content, or follow us on Twitter, at TalkingFedsPod. And you can go to patreon.com TalkingFeds, where we post bonus content exclusively for supporters. Just in the last couple days, we've had really interesting one-on-one interviews with Oren Siegel on domestic terrorism and with Paul Barrett on the continuing irresponsibility of the big social media companies in feeding our political woes. So go there, check out what we've got and decide if you might like to subscribe. It also helps us keep talking feds, as you may have noticed, with fewer commercials than I think almost any other leading podcast. And we do that for the optimal listening experience. We think it's worth it. And if you do and the spirit moves you to subscribe, please check it out and go ahead. You'll also, by the way, be able to participate in regular monthly Q&As with me. Submit your questions to talkingfeds.com contact. Whether it's for Talking 5 or general questions about the inner workings of the legal system for our sidebar segments. Thanks for tuning in, and don't worry. As long as you need answers, the feds will keep talking. Talking Feds is produced by Olivia Henriksen. Sound engineering by Matt McArdle. Rosie Don Griffin and David Lieberman are our contributing writers. Production assistance by Laurel Feldner, Kalena Tano, Emma Maynard, Izzy Brantley, and David Emmett. Our gratitude, as always, to the amazing Philip Glass, who graciously lets us use his music. Talking Feds is a production of Delito LLC. I'm Harry Littman. Talk to you later.